Welcome to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable Podcast. I'm Jason Moore, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Marilyn Ritchie. We are coming to you live on tape from the Institute for Biomedical Informatics Idea Factory at Penn Medicine, which is part of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. The goal of this podcast is to discuss important and fun topics in biomedical informatics in a casual manner. We will use a roundtable discussion format covering hot topics, news, published papers, advice for trainees, conferences, and other items of interest to the biomedical informatics community. We will invite guests to join us in person or by phone and plan to do some interviews with leaders in the field. Our goal is to produce at least one episode per month as our schedules allow. Marilyn and I plan to take turns as host leading the discussions. I'm Jason Moore, and it's great to be back to host episode 16, our 17th episode of the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast. We are coming to you live on tape from the metaverse due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Co-host Marilyn Ritchie is off for this episode, which means I will be flying solo. Fortunately, I will be joined for the discussion by special guest, Dr. Kevin Johnson from Vanderbilt University. So what have I been up to over the last few weeks? Well, um, if you don't know, I have big news. Um, I have accepted a new position as the founding chair of the Department of Computational Biomedicine at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. And this is uh, an amazing opportunity for me to build a brand new department, a brand new informatics department. Uh, I'll be hiring a number of faculty. I'll be building education programs, master's and PhD, uh, building research infrastructure for lots of data that's being collected at research projects at Cedars-Sinai. I'll be starting multiple core facilities to help investigators with their computational and informatics needs uh, and, and building training capacity to teach people about how to use informatics resources. So it's a, it's a big, uh, big job, bold vision, um, and a great opportunity to help one of the top medical centers in the country uh, get up to speed uh, in the informatics space. Um, of course, uh, I've been at Penn for seven years and have done a lot of those same things here um, at uh, building the Institute for Biomedical Informatics here. And um, I will uh, greatly miss uh, my many colleagues and friends here at Penn. And it's been an amazing experience to be here. Um, Penn's been a great environment to build uh, a top informatics program in. It's a ver very collegial, collaborative, supportive atmosphere. And I uh, just want to send out thanks to all the people that I've worked with and that have helped me. Uh, accomplish uh, the many things uh, that I've done here uh, at Penn. Um, they will all be sorely missed. And um, of course, uh, I'm committed to helping everyone here continue to be successful as best I can remotely. But I'm really, really looking forward to moving to Los Angeles. We're going to be closer to close family and friends. And uh, the opportunity to build this department was one that I just couldn't pass up. And we're, we're going to talk with Kevin uh, Johnson here uh, shortly in the discussion session about uh, kind of the advantages and disadvantages of changing institutions. It happens commonly, frequently in academia. It's a, a normal part of the, pro the academic process. And we'll, we'll go through 
um, some of the reasons why you may or may, may not want to consider uh, a move like this. Uh, and Kevin's moving himself, and we'll talk about that. So anyway, um, I'll keep you posted on the podcast about uh, the new developments in Los Angeles, and, and I'm sure Marilyn will keep us posted on the new developments uh, here at Penn. Before we get into our discussion topic for the day, uh, I have a few announcements. In case you're listening to us for the first time, you can find us on the web, uh, bmipodcast.org. Uh, you can also send us feedback to the email address feedback at bmipodcast.org. You can leave fat feedback uh, via Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at bmirpodcast, and we have a Facebook page as well. Be sure to leave us feedback on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, the reviews help us improve the podcast, but also help improve our visibility. Welcome. I'm Nancy Lorenzi, Professor of Biomedical Informatics at Vanderbilt University. Today you are listening to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable Podcast with Jason and Marilyn. Now on to our discussion topic. Each episode we will pick a hot topic for discussion. Today our topic is the advantages and disadvantages of changing institutions. I am joined today by Dr. Kevin Johnson, who is chair of the Department of Biomedical Informatics at Vanderbilt University. Welcome back, Kevin. Thanks, Jason. Great to see you here. It's great to see you as well. So you've been a, you've been a department chair for, I think, 10 years, more than 10 years at Vanderbilt and have seen a lot of faculty come and go. And uh, I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts uh, about this particular topic. And, and I think you and I both have changed institutions a few times and have, have had a lot of experience in making this, these decisions and, and they're never, never easy, easy decisions. Um, I don't know. Do you have some thoughts about this from your perspective as a department chair? Oh, I sure do. Um, and I have to say there's these two roles that I, that I had uh, for a long time, which was CIO as well as department chair. So I've had a chance to see this from really kind of every angle, including staff changes. Um, I think my major thought is, you know, many people have asked the question, why would you do it, right? And I know, um, as you know well, I'm about to be embarking on yet another adventure coming to your department uh, at Penn. And the first question people asked me at my place was sort of why. And, you know, there's really a few reasons why that could happen. Number one, of course, is the job. It simply might be a, a better fit for where you know your career is heading. And if you've always wanted to be, let's just say, a vice chair in charge of clinical informatics, then a place that's growing, that's offer, giving people new opportunities to do sort of leadership roles might be something that your organization either already has filled or isn't really quite ready yet to fill. And in my experience as chair, that's been the most common, is people who essentially are coming to a place that's very, very robust and pretty full who now see an opportunity to do something bigger and are sort of looking in, at all of the positions and saying, I'm going to basically have to wait for someone to die or leave for me to get into that <laughs> position. <laughs> right, right. So they make the decision to go. Um, family, you know, a lot of us have spouses, partners, kids, and, and for lots of different reasons, people may simply say that this location is no longer ideal 
given other issues in the family. For, for me, actually leaving Vanderbilt, that was a piece of what I had made a decision uh, based on. Um, clearly, spouse and partners who move are the other part of the family situation where you may be sort of pushed out because you simply have to go with the other people that you, that you love um, and as they embark on their journey. One of my I probably most memorable experiences was that I hired a couple, each of whom had very strong careers, neither of which could find the perfect place for both of them in their career journey. And so they made a decision that every five years or so, they would switch and let one person lead the next move and then the next person lead the following move. And we knew right up front that we were only going to have this person for five or six years. So kind of shocking, quite frankly, because you and I both know a lot of times it takes a few years, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And so, you know, 10 years is a great number to imagine thinking about moving. But uh, there are people who do different things. And in those situations, that's their reason. And then I have to mention this because everybody asked me this question. Um, and I guess the way I'll, I'll start it is to tell you, somebody who found out I was going to Penn and who is from the University of Pennsylvania and who loves Philadelphia said, so was it a push or a pull? <laughs> and for people who may not understand what that means, it's probably obvious, but just in case, the idea of a pull is what I just talked about. There's something else going on someplace else that really pulls you to go there. But there is a push, right? There are many, many reasons why people are looking around in their current institution and thinking, how do I get out of this? Or somebody in the institution says, you need to get out of this. And those are things we rarely hear. You typically, once you've been around for a while, you can typically tell by the letters people write, whether it's mostly a pull or mostly a push. Sometimes speed gives you a hint of it in case you're all out there wondering whether this person who just came in was leaving. So people who say, you know, effectively immediately they're going to be resigning, it's a push. Something's going on that they don't want to be a part of anymore, or someone has asked them to leave. It may not be anything that is, um, quote, wrong with the person who's leaving. It could simply be a fit issue. It could also be a funding issue. It could be a lot of things. But the point is, there is a group of people who make a decision to go to a new institution in part because their old institution is no longer as welcoming. So those are, those are my thoughts. And that's what I've certainly seen as a chair. What have you seen? Well, let me, let me tell you some of my own personal stories. So as you know, Kevin, early in my career, um, I was at Vanderbilt as an assistant professor and uh, was tenured. And then the next year decided to leave and, um, you know, there were there was both a push and a pull at that time. I was not happy with a lot of decisions that uh, the leadership at Vanderbilt at the time was making, and and at that time I was really embedded in the the genetics space, not 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 your former you know your current department, right. um, and and there were decisions being made that I wasn't happy with about leadership and and other issues, direction of genetics at Vanderbilt and. And, you know, I had just gotten tenure and was really starting to think about taking on leadership roles. And I really just stopped and thought, you know, is this a place where I want to build, um, you know, build a career as a leader? And uh, so for that reason, I decided to um, start looking for other positions and other opportunities. And, you know, it's, it's funny because my, my wife and I 
got out a map of the United States and, and, you know, I had several grants at that point and had, had a lot of success and knew that I could move probably almost anywhere I wanted to. And, and so even though there was uh, a push, um, there was also a pull because we uh, decided we wanted to start a family and we gave serious thought to, okay, where do we, where do we really want to live? Where do we really want to start a family? And we got out a map of the United States and, and circled places where we thought we might want to raise a family. And that's, you know, long story short, that's how I ended up at Dartmouth College up in uh, New Hampshire. And we enjoyed for 11 years, enjoyed living in a small New England town, safe, great schools, great place to raise kids. And it was kind of an idealistic uh, situation. And, um, and the other thing I would say is that during my time at Vanderbilt, I remember this vividly. I was just telling this story to a student recently. I remember this vividly sitting in my office as an assistant professor. I was just starting to have some success, landed my first R01, uh, published a couple good impact papers and was thinking, you know, I, am I going to be the kind of person that, that just goes with the flow in terms of salary and recognition, or am I going to fight for what I think I'm worth? And I made that decision that day that I was going to spend the rest of my career fighting for what I thought I deserved salary wise and recognition wise. And I've never regretted that decision since. And my salary has gone up pretty rapidly uh, over the years. And, um, and I think, you know, that's a decision each faculty member needs to make is how, how aggressively do you want to fight for salary, assuming you can justify it? Uh, do, you, do you feel comfortable being aggressive about salary? Not everybody feels comfortable with that, but you, if, if you don't feel comfortable being aggressive about salary, then you need to be willing to suffer the consequences of that because uh, big raises usually happen at the time of promotion or when you leave an institution. And so I would say, you know, certainly part of the decision-making uh, that has gone into me either considering and turning down offers or accepting offers um, is salary and, and fighting for what I think I'm worth. And, and often that's, you know, when you consider a job elsewhere, that's often the only time that you really get a good understanding of what your value is. What is another institution willing to pay you in terms of salary? How much money in terms of startup package and investment are they willing to give you? Are they willing right. to give you something like an endowed chair that your home institution might not be willing to give you? And so I would say that's one of the big advantages of changing institutions is knowing what your value is and, and realizing that value. Well, it's funny when you talk about advantages, everything that you said, I could not agree with more strongly. I think that there is there are three tangible benefits. And then there's some other benefits. And you mentioned one of them, which is salary. I would say the other things you have to think about is, are, uh, about is space and people. And so many times the salary may be the same, maybe even slightly less, but your life may be better, right? Because they may provide you with more space. They may provide you with better space. They may be providing you with really great teams of people with whom you can collaborate, mentors, I think, especially for junior people, I you may know that I also lead the um, National Advisory Committee for Robert Wood Johnson's Amos Medical Faculty Development Program, and it's very common that we meet with new fellows who are in a terrible mentoring situation. 
and they're being asked to do certain things, even though their time is protected. And when we talk with their mentors, they don't really understand the concept of protected time for junior faculty. And those are people where we've actually told them, maybe you need to look elsewhere, you know, just because your life's going to be better long-term if you can find the right sweet spot for what you want to see happening and people who make that easy for you to advance. Um, when you talk about this issue of sort of the, the advantages to leaving an institution, I should probably tell you the story of Frank Oski, who is one of the leaders of the field of pediatrics who, who died in the mid 90s. And Frank and I were incredibly close. So in 1992, when I completed my chief residency in pediatrics, uh, Dr. Oski pulled me in a room and he said, well, you should look around the country, but just know I'm going to beat whatever offer you get. I was very much a kid who had never received any kind of attention like that, never really wanted attention like that. And I took what he said to mean, wow, he thinks I'm really worth a lot. I should stay here no matter what. And so essentially, I aborted my national search for my first job as an informatics person and a pediatrician. I went to Stanford. Stanford made me a nice offer, uh, kind of verbally. And Frank said, Frank came back and said to me, I've talked to Stanford and, um, you know, their offer was good. I'm going to give you a couple dollars more. You should stay here. In retrospect, the offer I got from Stanford was terrible because I didn't know what I wanted. Right. So they kind of lowballed me because I just didn't know. So Frank on his deathbed says to me, you know, Kevin, I got you at a bargain. <laughs> and, and the first part of that was I kind of, you know, I re-round the tape. And I knew a lot of things were different. I understood it a lot more better when Frank was close to dying than I did when I first got the job. For example, I didn't ask for an office. I told him I'd find a space to sit. And I did. I found this kind of anteroom between two offices, and I put my, off, my space there. I didn't ask him for furniture, but I knew that I could get furniture from Surplus. So I went over to Surplus, and I got a desk and a nice chair and a file cabinet, a little beat up, but you know, it worked. I was as proud as I could be. I'm like, look, I got an office. It's great. No window, two doors. People pass through all the time from one office to another. I just kind of sat in there. It took me about five years to realize I screwed up, right? You know, and so I fixed it all later. But Frank says to me, um, I got you at a bargain. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, you didn't know what you wanted. And I know that I only have so much to give people. And there were other people who you knew you wanted as colleagues. But for me to get them, I was going to have to pay them more or give them more. So by not giving it to you, I was able to give it to other people. And just as you just said, Jason, that didn't really sit well with me. Right? <laughs> by the time I heard that, I kept thinking, I thought we were friends. I thought, <laughs> I thought you cared about me. As a chair, I totally get it now. But I will never do that to people. You know, My <laughs> view of it is, if you're coming to work with our organization, I don't want you to leave. And as I tell people, tell me what you need to be successful. And if you don't completely know, I'm going to recommend that you at least take this offer back to your own boss and make sure that we are aligned with what you need to be successful. Um, I totally agree with you, though, that those are the, that's one of the main reasons people move. If I could offer a couple other ones that I know people have told me about in the past. Um, my favorite one for people who are fond of Windows computers is pressing Control-Alt-Delete on your life, <laughs> right? Which which is everybody has that set of activities you're doing at your home organization that you can't see a way out of. And sometimes the easiest way to get out of them is to leave. 
is to say, I'm, I'm just no longer here to do that. Um, I've done that in my career a couple of times where there are things that I sort of had backed into and realized to get out of this is going to take years unless I leave and leaving has other advantages. So the control of the leak thing, certainly past before you become very senior is incredibly important to at least acknowledge. It's important to note though, that most of us, especially in informatics, which is so highly interdisciplinary, likely have relationships all around the country, are likely doing leadership all around the country. And that doesn't stop when you leave, it just follows you. So you aren't pressing control alt delete on your entire career, only on the part that's essentially paying most of your salary in that case. Um, we talked about career advancement. I would say that sometimes a pivot, and that's, as you know, Jason, was one of my motivations. I'm very interested in science communication, but I'm admittedly a hack at it now. So the opportunity to work at Annenberg was super important for me. Vanderbilt doesn't have an Annenberg uh, communications team, and therefore a job that offered that represented something very different and obviously was very unique. Um, I mentioned mentoring, but I'll also mention the environment. Um, you and I both know and have been to toxic environments, and sometimes you don't realize they're, they're toxic. It's, it's very much a sort of Potemkin village problem where everything looks rosy until sometimes you arrive, and then everything changes. And it's not uncommon. It's relatively common for people who are listening, for people to get to a place, and within a year, they know that this could have been a mistake. And they need to talk to their mentor about that immediately because sometimes it is. We had faculty, and I think you know a few too, who have, a, if you look at their CV, they were at a place for less than a year. Um, it is incredibly hard on your family to leave, but it's actually sometimes much harder to stay because of what you bring home, how disengaged you are, how affected you can be by a, a bad environment. And I think in some people's situations, leaving represents a painful additional year, but really at the end of the year, at the end of 10 years, a wonderful upgrade in terms of lifestyle and everything else. Yeah, I can't, I can't agree with you more. Uh, you've made some really good points. Uh, I definitely agree with the points you made about mentoring. I, I've been blessed with fabulous mentors my entire career, every step of the way. And good mentoring is absolutely critical for yep. success. And you have to seek out those good, good mentors. And if you can't find them, that's a problem. And, and it could be, could be a reason to leave, to find, to find the mentoring that you need to be successful. We all need mentors every I, step of the way. And I'll add, most of the people who are listening to this probably don't know what a good mentor is. Um, in part because informatics is such a new discipline. And so for me to have learned about good mentoring I had to go think about the pediatric side because that's an older discipline. There's a lot more mature people. There's a lot more people who are further in their career with very little to lose. And they can talk to you about, do you have this? Are you getting this? And suddenly you realize I'm not getting any of those things. And that turns out to matter. Yeah. And, and the point about environment is so critical and that's really shaped a lot of my decisions. Um, you know, being in a collegial collaborative environment has been important, very important to me. Uh, Dartmouth was certainly a very collaborative collegial environment and Penn as well has been a very collaborative and collegial environment. So those were two really good decisions that I made. Um, and you know, that, that just plays a huge role in your quality of life, uh, as both uh, a faculty member and your home life as well. Be being at a place where it's easy to collaborate, where, where you have access to people who care about you and are invested in your success. 
Um, so finding, you know, that's a good reason to leave a place and to join a new place is, is you know, seeking a better, better environment. Um, it's an interesting point you raised about knowing what you want. And I don't think I've ever really struggled with that, but I, I can see, I've seen it before in a number of people. I, th- I think it's difficult sometimes to know what you want and, and also what you can have, right? What are, what are people willing to give you, right? I think your, your story, the story you told speaks to that. Um, and, and that, unfortunately, that comes with, with experience and you learn over time, you know, what your value is, what to ask for, what people are willing to give you, and, and you learn how to play that game. And that's another important role of mentors who have been through that and can, can help teach you um, you know, what, what, what you can ask for and what you can expect to get. I have to tell you, when I came to Vanderbilt, having been through the OSCE experience, I talked to the new director of the athletic department. And I said, I'm just curious what it was that you were able to get from Vanderbilt that surprised you. And I asked for half the things that that person told me about. And I, and I got most of them. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And what I did, just to let people know, is I created an option model. I knew what I thought I needed to succeed. And so I wrote down on a table all of the things I needed functionally. Like I needed space to have postdocs. I needed, you know, that kind of thing. And then on the right, I came up with three different ways that Vanderbilt could get me there. But I, then I said, you know, any one of these three would be great or if you have a fourth one. But what I said was, if you want me to succeed, you need to check all the boxes for the things that are on the left. And if you aren't able to check them, we just have to be honest about that. And to be frank, I did the exact same thing during my negotiation with Penn, because that model acknowledges you may not know that organization or their culture well enough, but you're at least exposing different strategies that are functionally based to help make sure that you get what you need to succeed. And they should be wanting you to succeed when they hire you. Yeah, I agree. And that's that's exactly how you should think about uh, the resources that you need uh, when you change institutions is what do you need to be successful? What does that look like? What does success look like? And how do you get there? It's an important part of the thought process. But we have to talk about the risks because I think (laughs) I know we both have had to deal with that too, right? Absolutely. I'm I'm curious, just I'm going to ask you, what do you think the big risks were for you making a move like the one you're going through? Well, um, well, for me, the biggest risk in my mind transitioning from Penn to Cedar Sinai is rebuilding my research lab. So that that, frankly, honestly, scares me a little bit. Um, I've had a, a big, highly functioning research lab here at Penn for a number of years. Um, I, I had a whole bunch of senior postdocs that were just cranking out cutting-edge papers, doing really, really good work. And now they're moving on to faculty positions. I was going to have to do some rebuilding of my lab in the next year anyway at Penn. But in moving to Cedar sinai you know, very, very few of the people remaining in the lab are going to go with me. So I'm going to have to do a complete, basically a complete rebuild of my lab. And for mm-hmm. someone who's used to having a big research lab, uh, a highly functioning, highly collaborative, highly productive research lab, that scares me a little bit, you know, kind of starting from scratch. And that, that, that is a little bit of a risk for me. Oh, yeah, no question. I, I, the other one that I know a little bit about from chatting with you is the family risk. So I know a lot of people who make a move and the expectation is, okay, I got this job that starts July 1, we all pick up, 
we move, you know, Beverly Hillbillies fashion, the entire family <laughs> to some new place on July one, and we just start working. But that wasn't your experience, was it? No, actually, um, in in both cases, when I have previously moved, um, it's been really good for the family, and that's worked out really well. Um, and uh, in in this case, my my kids are older. I, I've got one in college and one about to, to go to college, so it's a little different family situation for me. And we're we're actually moving uh, to Los Angeles, where we we have family and friends. And so for for us personally, it's a it's a better situation, uh, given we'll be closer to people that that we've known for many years. A lot of people I know move in phases, so they're you know one person moves, the others don't. There are some couples. This is one of those things I had to learn as I got older. There are some couples that really thrive on the level of independence that sometimes happens during these moves. So they, they enjoy having space apart. And these are all things that as a chair, I had to recognize every family's different. And that my, you know, my imposing my sort of beliefs on the way a move should happen, including a recruitment. I've recruited people who've said, oh, no, no, we're going to keep our house in San Diego, but I'm going to move and I'm going to have a condo. And I'm sitting there trying to, you know, can I get you both to get together for dinner so that we can talk about Nashville? But at the end of the day, they really didn't want that. And I had to basically be acknowledging that. So that can be a negative or it can be a positive. Um, one of the things that happened to me on this move was people reminded me about my investment in social capital. Um, and the fact that when one moves to a new environment, you have investments in another place that you're about to just abandon, which means you have to then go through the exact same process, which could, which could be decades to really understand how the place works, who the people are, what small favors get you in return, who you can trust, who you can't trust, uh, who trusts you and maybe who doesn't trust you. Uh, maybe even in the community, you know, for us, where do we take our dog when we take trips? I'm still learning what do people do here for extended you know, care options for their pets. And those are things that I just didn't have to think about anymore. And as you get older, you know, having to rekindle your thought processes is, a, is definitely a negative. Um, I don't know, are there any other ones that we missed? Well, let me just add to that and say, I, I think you know that is definitely one of the big advantages to staying at an institution. And I think why a lot of people do stay at institutions for a long time, even, even for their entire career is that, that comfort factor, right? Knowing everybody, you, you might not like the politics, but at least you know and understand them and, right. and, and have a way to work your way through it have a strategy to deal with it. Whereas when you move to a new place, you have to learn all that from scratch. And, and so that is an advantage of staying at an institution and a risk for leaving for a new institution is you don't know what you're getting yourself into and what the, the politics or the other complexities are. They could be worse. And you just don't know that. There's always the devil you don't know. <laughs> it's always going to be there, right? The question is, can you live with it or not? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, there, there are a lot of unknowns when moving to a new place. And, and this question about whether you can be successful is, is more than just about money and resources and space. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's about all these other, other things. And, and to, to some degree, you take a leap of faith when you move to a new institution that things are going to work out and that the system will be easy to work with, that, that people will want to join you at that institution, all of those things. Um, yeah. Well, there's a great book called The Startup of You that I recommend, and I've probably recommended it on the previous podcast, because we are in some ways small businesses. And, and the point that you made 
you know, my about, um, boy, I have to set up a very large lab that's high functioning with postdocs. What I would say is you've done it, you've done it once, you've done it twice. It's just, you know, lather, rinse and repeat. You know how to pull this off. Yeah. But I do think it feels, especially as you get older, um, it feels like unnecessary work that it's just a little harder to get motivated to do as we get older, isn't it? It's definitely harder. And, uh, but I think the, big, the biggest thing for me is just missing the team, right? I have to build a new yeah. team and that takes time. And, and, and during that transition period, you don't have the team that you, that you've depended on for so long. And so I, yeah, that's, that's, uh, it's going to be a big change. You know, but one of the things you said that I think is really important there is it takes time. I think a lot of people who move expect that they will not lose a year on their grant. You know, that they will actually have on the ground people standing at the door ready to be hired, postdocs. And what you realize is you don't want those people, right? <laughs> I mean, the people you want, you may have to entice, maybe occasionally poach, certainly spend a lot of time working with before you call it something official, right? So I think, as you said, if people move, when people move, they need to acknowledge there is going to be a hit in terms of productivity as you build a team that will then take off in the future. So you, you said a, a word that I, I think we should talk about for a few minutes. You said the P word, poach. And you and I have both done a lot of recruiting in our careers, and uh, poaching has a very negative connotation. And I'm curious how you as a department chair who's hired a lot of faculty have, have handled the, the poaching um, situation, you know, we, biomedical informatics is a very small community. We all know each other. We all work together. Um, and sometimes you hire somebody from an institution where you have a, a close colleague or a friend in a leadership position. And, and it's always uncomfortable, I think, for both, both you and the person that you're recruiting from. Yeah, I made it a point not to poach, but obviously you recruit. And one of the ways that I do that is I leave it to other people who might be interested to find me. Um, it doesn't mean that I haven't made it clear that we're hiring. So I will certainly put in various places that we're hiring. Um, it doesn't even mean that I haven't called really good people and said, we're recruiting. If you know of anybody, let me know. Uh, what I don't do myself is say, you know, Jason, you got to come to Vanderbilt. What am I going to do to get you here? You got to, you've got, we got to have you back. Um, because I think, first of all, it, it goes back to that list of benefits and, and you know, pros and cons, which is I personally don't know that when I started, when I start that process, I really understand what's right for that person. I think they have to go home, have a conversation, make a decision with the people they love, friends or family, that they'd like to look at a position, not get that feeling from somebody who's a leader in the field that they're super special. Because all of a sudden, especially if it's a national search, they may not get the position. And so they've done necessarily some things that are risky to their family, to their lab. As you said, postdocs get the sense that you're leaving. And then all of a sudden they start looking elsewhere. And all of that may be for naught if we, in fact, don't make it a clear transition for them to the new place. Um, so I think there's an art to it, which is to let people know what the, what the opportunities are and to give them an opportunity to, to make a first contact with you, which is what I've typically done. There are one or two places that I know, um, and I should say that from the standpoint of faculty, putting on my CIO hat, no question. For example, when I was looking for a chief security officer, there were people who I knew if I could get this person here, I'm going to sleep tonight. And, and I was not afraid at all to take a resume somebody else 
had provided me and call those people and say, I would love to meet you and get a chance to know you better. Maybe that was more like poaching, but it was clearly the case in those in that position. I mean, one of the things that you and I have probably also learned is in the staff world, in the hospital support world and research support worlds, and frankly, in the corporate world, when one person leaves, their entourage often follows. So no question that's a poach. Um, and, and also no question that it's expected because many people do cluster hires exactly because they fully expect that when they bring in Jason, Jason's essentially agreeing he's going to bring in three junior faculty in an entire lab. And that essentially grows a department with one major hire. So there are strategies people use that don't use the word poaching, but are in fact poaching. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I, I think I think I've probably legitimately poached once in my career. Um, and, and I truly believe the person is that I did poach was, is much better off now than, than they were before. But, um, but yeah, I know, I know who that is, by the way. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I, I don't typically do that in, in practice um, because, because we are a close knit community and, and we all do know each other and work together and respect each other. And it's just not a very nice thing to do. But it's it's interesting to think about it though from the you know from a junior faculty member perspective, right? And 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 to think about, um, you know, do they want to be poached? Uh, what do they think about poaching? Is 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 it is it better for them to have people vying for their attention and and trying to move them to a new institution? Is it better for their careers? Um, it, does it help them know what their their value is, their worth? Um, I don't know if anybody's listening and has comments about that, feel free to, to get in touch with us and, and share some of your comments about that perspective. It's a really good point. And I would love to see what those comments show. My view of it is if I'm at a national meeting and someone's presenting a poster and it turns out that the work they're doing fits beautifully with an area of growth that I see in my lab or that I see in our department or center or institute, that dropping off a, a card and saying, if you're interested, let me know, is, is to me legit. Because there may be many reasons why that we've just listed, this is a great opportunity for them. Yeah. Um, if I were to do the exact same thing and say, um, I want you at Vanderbilt, you need, to, you need to come, let me get you on a, let me get you to give a talk and then let's start. That to me feels a little bit more coercive. And I would only do that if I already knew, to your point, that they were leaving. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is this is uh, this has been a, a great conversation, Kevin. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your experience. And and um, I think uh, for leaders and and junior faculty a lot uh, alike, I think there's a lot to think about here about the advantages and disadvantages of of moving to new institutions, recruiting people away. Um, it's um, uh, it's it's an important area to give a lot of thought to for a whole lot of reasons. I'm really glad you brought up the topic. And, and I think we both had to be candid to make this really useful for the listeners. So I learned a lot just even hearing you talk about, about this last topic and others. Um, and I hope other people um, benefit from and, um, and are not afraid, to your point, of knowing who they are, what they're worth, and what it takes for them to succeed in going for that and talking to one's mentor. Yep, I agree. Hi, my name is Chris Shute, the Bloomberg Distinguished Professor in Health Informatics and Chief Research Information Officer at Johns Hopkins University. 
You are listening to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable Podcast with Jason and Marilyn. It is now time for some news. The following are a few things that caught our eye. First up, um, I saw a tweet today from at Sandra V. Porto on tips for incoming PhD students. Her first one was find a therapist as soon as possible. Her second one was find a primary care doctor. Her third one was do not pick an advisor based on how famous they are. Her fourth one, find people you feel safe with like administrative staff, students, professors, et cetera. And number five, take one day per week completely off. I think these are all really good advice. Um, not sure about the first one, finding a therapist. Uh, that might be easier said than done, but I can see for some students uh, that that might be important. So um, certainly something to think about. Uh, finding a primary care doc, absolutely a good idea. Um, make, making sure you have routine medical care during graduate school is very important. Uh, do not pick an advisor based on how famous they are. Um, I think this is really good advice. I think the most important thing when picking an advisor is to find somebody that you that you click with, right? That you you have a compatible personality, um, somebody who's doing exciting research uh, that interests you, uh, somebody that has a good reputation, somebody that's a nice person that's not going to mistreat you. Um, you know, you can find that out by talking to other students, finding out about their reputation. Um, but yeah, picking somebody just based on their fame uh, could be problematic if, if those other things don't align. And certainly finding people you feel safe with is important. You need, you need people that you can go to and talk to about problems and, and sometimes serious issues uh, that will stand up for you and give you good advice. And taking time off is so important. I agree with that. I think one day a week uh, off is at least one day a week off is is very important for recharging, regrouping, de-stressing, um, and uh, so I I agree with that advice. So thank you, Sandra, for those tips. Okay, next, uh, healthcare IT news reported that Google is dismantling its health division. Uh, this was a surprise to me, and uh, it started with the uh, the vice president for Google Health, David Feinberg, announcing he was leaving Google to take over as the CEO at Cerner, which, if you don't know, is one of the big electronic health record companies. And there was also news, um, I think just today, that Apple is scaling back some of its health initiatives. So what's going on at these big companies, Google and Apple scaling back their health activities? I mean, these were these were made big news a couple of years ago when they jumped into the healthcare game. Have they determined that there's not money to be made in the healthcare space? Have they tried and failed? And I think a, a you know, more specific question in the informatics space is, you know, what does this mean for AI and healthcare if these companies are getting out of the healthcare space? So anyway, something to keep an eye on. It's an interesting uh, and I think somewhat unexpected trend, depending on how you look at it. I think we've previously mentioned on, on the show um, the new Netflix series, The Chair, which explores the experience of a new department chair at an elite university. Um, this was has been much anticipated in, in the academic community because it really um, you know, was billed as, as um, 
exploring a lot of uh, the issues that, that we face in academia, interpersonal relationships and, and politics and, you know, the challenges of being a leader in academia. So the show just finished its first season of six 30-minute episodes. And from what I can tell, it's got great reviews. I've uh, both professional reviews that I've seen online and from colleagues that have seen it. Everybody really likes it. So I think this is well worth a watch. Um, I haven't seen it yet myself, um, but I do plan to watch it very soon. Uh, and be sure and send us feedback. Uh, if you've seen it, let us know what you, what you thought about it and how realistic you thought it was. Um, and interestingly, in one of the reviews I read, I saw a quote uh, from uh, Wendy Rhodes, who said, and I quote, it's like academia, everything is a big effing deal because the stakes are so small. And uh, I really laughed when I saw that. I think I've seen this quote before, but I really laughed when I saw this because it, it's absolutely true. And I was remembering a faculty meeting I had. This was actually a leadership meeting I was part of um, some months ago um, where there were a bunch of important people on the call, you know, big salaries. And we spent the better part of an hour talking about a $300 issue. Um, and in my opinion, it was an issue that could, should have been solved in about five minutes, or maybe not even have been solved behind the scenes and not even brought to the attention of a, a, a bunch of leaders. And I couldn't believe we wasted that much time on it. And if you tallied up the total amount of income over that hour of all the important people in the room, I'm sure it far exceeded whatever the three the $300 that we were discussing. So, uh, so this quote, I think, is very appropriate, and uh, the stakes are, most of the time, quite small, and we as academics, unfortunately, spend a huge amount of time dealing with very minor issues. Uh, next, um, BBC News had a recent piece on video games turning 50 years old, and they tell the story of how Nolan Bushnell, who later founded Atari, uh, developed with uh, Jim Stein from Stanford, one of the first commercial video games called Computer Space. Um, and uh, I, you know, I mentioned this because I think it's important to remember that the gaming industry is really the driving force behind the fast CPUs and GPUs that we have access to to do our computing. So uh, I think we owe a lot to the video game industry, and I think there's a lot of technology, you know, 3D graphics, for example, animation that's come out of the gaming industry that we use in informatics research. Um, I participated in a paper with more than 20 colleagues on the challenges of research and clinical care with electronic health records. Uh, Marilyn was a co-author on that as well. Um, and uh, John Holmes from here at Penn really took the lead on finishing that up and getting it submitted. Uh, the paper just came out and was published in the journal Methods of Information and Medicine. And uh, I was thinking, Marilyn, um, if you're listening, that we should cover this in an upcoming journal club discussion. And I'll have a link in the show notes if you're interested, but we uh, cover a lot of different areas uh, in this paper, a lot of different challenges. There was a new piece in Nature on August 13th about how autocorrect in Excel is still, after all these years, creating errors in genomics database, uh, databases and published papers. Uh, the estimate from this particular piece is that about 30% of published papers have mangled gene names in tables and supplementary data in, in papers. That's, a, that's phenomenal. Um, and they estimated that there are about 700 or so papers with gene name errors that were published in 2020. 
and that's up from 280 in 2014. So in, in, in the era where, you know, we, we have so much experience writing Python scripts, for example, people are still using Excel to process and report gene names. It's, um, it's quite remarkable that the number of errors is skyrocketing here recently. It'd be interesting to take a deeper dive into, you know, what's, what's driving this and what we can do about it. But uh, I have a link to the piece here in the show notes if you want to take a look. Um, as many of you know, I'm a retro computing enthusiast, and I love computers from the late 70s and early 80s. Um, those are the computers I grew up on and learned how to program on. And um, so uh, I thought I'd call to your attention uh, something called the Retro Challenge, which is a fun event where computer programmers and vintage computer enthusiasts complete software and hardware projects, anything they want. It's meant to be creative exercise with old computers over a one month time frame. So you have one month, you start a project, you can do whatever you want. You could program a game, you could uh, do a hardware modification, you could do anything you want in a one month time frame. And then you blog about it and you tell the world what you did. And then there's um, a committee of judges that evaluates all the projects and, and gives out awards. It's meant to be fun, it's meant to be creative, it's not a real serious challenge, but it's just meant to motivate people to roll up their sleeves and have some fun with retro computers. So anyway, if uh, if uh, if you like retro computing, take a look. The next event takes place pretty soon in October of this year, 2021. Speaking of old computers, I thought I would note that on August 12th of this year, uh, the IBM PC celebrated its 40 year anniversary for 40 year birthday. Um, this computer featured an Intel 8088. Uh, processor running at 4.77 megahertz, and it sold for about $1,500, which is like $4,500 in today's uh, today's terms. Came with 16 KB of RAM. You could get, a, I think, a 64K uh, option. And uh, most people interacted with the computer through IBM PC DOS, which was developed by Microsoft. And that was one of the first big contracts that Microsoft got. And really, you know, IBM, because people trusted it uh, in business really took off as a business machine and later, you know, a home computer and really, I think, helped launch Microsoft into the big leaves because Microsoft DOS uh, was distributed with all the IBMs that were sold. So anyway, happy birthday, IBM. And while I'm on the theme of PCs and Microsoft, I ran across a neat project on the web to create uh, a Windows uh, 95-like operating system, which runs in a browser using JavaScript. So it's kind of a simulated Windows environment that very closely resembles Windows 95. They call it Windows 96. Of course, no Windows 96 ever existed. And it has the look and feel of an actual version of Microsoft Windows, and you can run software in it and interact with it just as you would uh, Windows running on your computer. And so I've included the link here. It's windows96.net. Definitely give it a try. Uh, load it up in your browser and just poke around a little bit. It's really amazing. I had a lot of fun with it. And our final bit of news for the day is that the National Library of Medicine is looking for a scientific director to lead its intramural research program. Applications are due very soon. Hopefully the podcast will come out before. Uh, but they're due on September 15th, and uh, looks like a great opportunity. Um, and I think it'd be a lot of fun to work, um, you know, with the intramural research program at the NLM. They're doing uh, a number of amazing things, and a lot of the tools and technology that we use 
every day in informatics come out of the intramural program at, at NLM. Okay, that is it for the news today. And if you run across any items of interest, be sure and let us know. Listener feedback is very important to us. We would very much like to hear your questions, ideas for topics, and thoughts about how we can do a better job. You can always reach us by sending email to feedback at bmipodcast.org. And as mentioned earlier, you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Now on to our segment on history of biomedical informatics. We are pleased to have Dr. John Holmes here uh, at Penn Medicine back to provide part two of his historical overview of the origins of expert systems. Thank you, John. Hi, I'm John Holmes, Professor of Medical Informatics and Epidemiology and Associate Director of the Penn Institute for Biomedical Informatics for Medical Informatics. Over the past 40 plus years I've been at Penn, I've had the opportunity to work on a variety of artificial intelligence and machine learning projects as they apply specifically to epidemiologic research. If there is a common thread to many of these projects, it's in the domain of knowledge-based learning and inference. This is the second of three segments on this fascinating approach to representing knowledge and making inferences from that knowledge using a computer and specialized software. In the first segment, I introduced the basic principles of computable inference and the generic architecture of the expert system. And today I'm delighted to share with you some thoughts about the history of expert systems. So let's talk a little bit about that history. The 1960s through the 1990s were a veritable cauldron of activity in the development of expert systems. It arguably started with Alan Newell and Herbert Simon. They founded an artificial intelligence lab at Carnegie Mellon and developed something called the general problem solver back in the 1960s. Uh, this offered a heuristic approach to search and demonstrated the importance of rules in human cognition. And these rules were of the structure if-then, and they also provided the basic building blocks of concepts and provided ultimately the model for rule-based expert systems. Then in 1971, Edward Feigenbaum and Joshua Lederberg at Stanford developed something called Dendral. Um, Feigenbaum was the AI guy and Lederberg was a domain expert. And what was that domain? Well, it was intended to analyze soil samples taken from Mars and specifically performing chemical analysis based on spectrographic data so that the molecular structure of those soil samples could be hypothesized. It was the first use of knowledge engineering, that engineering coming from the incorporation of a domain expert, somebody who could actually um, articulate a set of rules that could be used to determine what those uh, molecular structures are. It was never actually referred to as an expert system at the time, but it had a lot of the anatomy and physiology of one. Then in 1976, uh, Ted Shortliff at Stanford, working under Bruce Buchanan and Stanley Cohen, um, developed something called mycin. And this was designed to assist with the diagnosis and treatment of infections. There are a number of really landmark things that come out of mycin. Um, the first was this inclusion of something called certainty factors. A certainty factor represents the degree to which the system was sure of a conclusion. The second is that it was the first to explain, to include an explanation facility, and it showed the user how the system actually reached a conclusion. These two things, the certainty factors and the explanation facility, are really coming into the forefront nowadays when we start thinking about 
explainable AI. In other words, getting the AI systems to tell us, the user, how it actually reached a conclusion or made a suggestion or, or a recommendation. Um, furthermore, a third contribution of Mycin was that it laid the groundwork for the first expert system shell, which was called eMycin, uh, which separated knowledge from inference so that it could be used in a variety of settings. Um, it was actually never used in practice, though. Then in the 1970s, a little bit later on, or maybe even around the same time, uh, Jack Myers at the University of Pittsburgh developed something called Internist One. This was the first large expert system and having over 100,000 rules and covered as much as 80% of the rules that were known in internal medicine at the time. Um, the inference-based heuristic rules uh, used a divide and conquer knowledge uh, type of system into problem areas. And the diagnosis was really the primary purpose with the diagnoses suggested by the system were actually ranked in order. And again, it was never used in clinical systems and clinical settings. Then in the mid 1980s, there was something called the quick medical reference um, that was, uh, or otherwise known as QMR, based on internist one, uh, also developed at the University of Pittsburgh. And it was the first expert system developed for microcomputers. Uh, it was a clinical consultant system that can offer differential diagnoses and often has been referred to as an electronic medical textbook. And in fact, in 1999, there was a paper in the Canadian Medical Association Journal that described it as follows. It can generate a differential diagnosis from clinical information entered into its program, offer information on over 600 diseases, describe associated disorders and complications of diseases, offer strategies to confirm or exclude disorders, and provide simulated cases for educational purposes. So it really does sound like what you would offer in a medical textbook. Now, there are a few others of importance too from this era. Uh, something called PUFF that was developed by Janice Aikens, who was working with Ted Shortliff at Stanford. Um, a PUFF was developed in 1979 and it was designed to interpret pulmonary function data. In 1980, the health system was developed at the University of Utah for the Macintosh. Um, and it provides alerts and reminders in an electronic health record system and it's in current use. In the mid-1980s, uh, there was a system called Caduceus that was built at the University of Pittsburgh by that same team that built Q, uh, QMR. And the goal here was to improve on mycin to include wider coverage of internal medicine, not just infections. And its inference engine was very similar to mycin, but it also includes abductive reasoning. And then there's even some more. In 1978, there was something called XCON uh, for the configuration of orders for VAX computers. And it was the first expert system known to have an impact on personnel. Um, if, if buying a computer, especially a mini computer in those days was uh, challenging. And you really needed to know what you wanted and what you were intending to do with this computer system. And that's what XCON helped you to do. It really helped to configure that order so that the computer could be built to your specifications. And then in the 1980s, late 1980s, actually, there was a system called Iliad uh, that was developed at the University of Utah, and it covers about 1,500 diagnoses. And it's used primarily as a teaching tool for medical students and actually was translated into French. And then in 1987, there's something called DX Plane, which was developed at Mass General Hospital. And it produces a ranked list of diagnoses, mostly used for medical education, but also in clinical practice. So that's it for our very short history. Um, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this little walk down a very important memory lane in the history of computing, 
artificial intelligence and biomedical informatics. Next time, I look forward to presenting how expert systems have evolved into clinical prediction rules, alerts, and reminders that are used every day in making complex clinical assessments and decisions. Thanks again. It is now time for our segment on advice and topics of interest for trainees and junior faculty. Today, uh, my topic of discussion is learning statistics. Uh, I think learning statistics is challenging for many the first time through. It certainly was for me the first time I dove into it. And, you know, what I found when I was learning statistics for the first time is that, you know, textbooks are often written by statisticians who don't always have a good understanding of what it is like to learn um, as a beginner. And so they're, they're really not written for the new, the new student. And uh, I recently ran across a really fabulous website called Seeing Theory, which provides an amazing visual introduction to probability and statistics. Um, the resource was developed by Daniel Koonin while he was an undergraduate student at Brown University. And there are chapters on probability, distributions, frequentist and Bayesian inference, and linear regression. Each has super simple visual introductions with interactive animation, um, really nicely designed, really well done. And the visuals I found were extremely informative. So I highly recommend checking this out. Even, even if you're a statistician, have a look, because I think um, you know, uh, Mr. Koonin did a, a remarkable job, really creative job in presenting these topics and making them very easy to understand from a visual perspective. And so I think you know, this is really great for learning the basic concepts and a, a great way to get started. Uh, and I've got a link here in the show notes to the webpage. It's seeing-theory.brown.edu. And, um, you know, while this is great for learning basic statistics and probability, you know, really getting to the point where you can think like a statistician and seeing the world like a statistician requires years of study. And, you know, I, I did a PhD uh, in human genetics and my advisor required all of us to do a master's degree in statistics, which I, which I gladly did and enthusiastically did. It was a lot of hard work, um, but, but well worth it. And he used to talk to us about gaining a maturity in st statistics. He would say, Jason, you need to gain a maturity in statistics. And of course, when I started, I, I had no idea what he was talking about. And, um, but then after I took about my fourth or fifth graduate level statistics class, it hit me re really almost instantaneously. I found myself thinking like a statistician. I, I could see a problem. I could formulate a valid statistical approach to solve the problem. And, and not just thinking about the right statistical method to apply, but really thinking deeply about the best way to make an inference or to analyze a data set. And sometimes that meant, you know, designing a new algorithm, you know, like a bootstrapping approach or something to solve a problem. And, and it really kind of sunk in and I really saw the world differently for the first time. And, and that was a, a really enlightening moment for me when, when I, I gained that confidence that I could solve any problem, you know, the, uh, using statistical methods um, and, and really thinking like a statistician. And so it was at that point when I realized that I had gained a maturity in statistics. And, uh, but it took me, you know, two or three years of hard work and multiple graduate level courses to get there. 
So uh, learning basic statistics is very useful, but gaining a maturity in statistics can take a lot of time and dedication, but it's well worth it if you can do it. Okay, it's time for closing remarks. Thank you for joining us today, joining me today. I was flying solo and um, Marilyn, I missed you and hope, uh, hope you're able to join me next time. And, um, you know, I'm getting ready to go through a big transition as, as, uh, Kevin and I discussed in the discussion segment, I'm moving to Cedar sinai medical school to start a new informatics department and, uh, very excited about everything that's ahead, but, you know, these transitions are hard. It's a lot of work, um, you know, transferring grants and and figuring out who wants to make the move and creating job descriptions to hire a new team and uh, going through all the paperwork. And, and, and then, of course, I have to tie up all the loose ends here at Penn. And uh, I've been here for seven years and have my fingers in a lot of different things around uh, the medical school and the broader university. And it's, it's, you know, it takes time. It's difficult to untangle all of that and to find people who can step in and do the work in my absence. And so I'm going through that process now. It's, um, it's difficult. It's time consuming. It's at times stressful. And, but I've done, I think like Kevin said, uh, I've done this before. Um, I know how to do this and um, looking forward to getting settled in Los Angeles, rebuilding my research lab and getting busy starting this new department. It's going to be a lot of fun and look forward to meeting new people and having exciting new, new things to work on. I think what I didn't get a chance to say in the discussion session with Kevin is that um, what I discovered when I transitioned from Vanderbilt to Dartmouth early in my career was that the first six months um, after that transition, when I was rebuilding my research lab, um, it was a, a time of, um, it was kind of like doing a sabbatical. I'd never done a sabbatical in my career, but that's what I imagine it's like because um, I had a lot of time on my hands um, because, you know, I'm at a new place and um, all the all the committee work and collaborations and, and busy work that we get sucked into hadn't quite hit yet. And so I really had a solid six months to, to do a lot of reading and thinking and um, retooling of my research program. And, and I remember that time very fondly because um, I did do a lot of reading and thinking and and had a lot of great new ideas, things that we spent the next 10 years working on, some things I'm still working on. And so I think that's, a, a, I would say, an additional advantage that I, I don't think Kevin and I discussed is, is this, this sabbatical idea that moving to a new institution, you're, you have some time to think. You're in a new environment, which is stimulating. You're, you're around new people and new experiences, and, and that's all very stimulating for, for research. So um, I'm hoping I have that experience moving to Los Angeles and, and a lot of new research ideas as I rebuild my research lab and uh, have new projects, new grants to write, uh, new things to work on. So anyway, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to it. And yes, I will uh, miss everybody here at Penn. And, but I'm, I've told them I'm committed to continuing to be a mentor for all of them and continuing to help everybody here at Penn be successful, which I definitely want to see happen. So um, anyway, I hope, uh, I hope this conversation about transitions with, with me and with Kevin has been useful for you as you think about your own careers and mapping it, mapping it out. And one of the other things that I, I you know, uh, didn't get to mention is 
um, which I think is important is, you know, at the end of the day, you have to look out for yourself and your family and, you know, being committed to an institution is good, but you have to remember that institutions don't always make decisions that are in your best interest. They make decisions that are in their own best interest. And there's this phrase that you might love your institution, but your institution will not love you back, I think is absolutely true. And so don't be afraid to be a little selfish and to look out for yourself and your family as you make these decisions. And um, and good luck. And let me know if there's anything I can do to help. So that's it for today. Thank you for joining us. And uh, we will see you next time. That is it for this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. We hope you will be able to find the time to join us again. Feel free to get in touch with us for feedback or suggestions. You can find our contact info online. It is now officially Miller time here in Philadelphia.